Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, we read. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third, likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. And last of all, the woman died also. No kidding. Oh, it doesn't say that in the text. Back to the text. Verse 23. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife shall she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to them, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. You'll remember in the last week before Passover, it was the custom of the religious leaders to examine the Passover lamb to, to determine whether or not it constituted a suitable sacrifice. The lamb had to be perfect, according to First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And the religious leaders continue their examination. It began with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now it's going to continue with the Sadducees. In answering their questions, Jesus continues to astound everyone. They're examining him, but he winds up examining them. And in the process, he examines us. The chapter began with a parable that revealed the selfishness of the religious leaders in verses 1 through 12. And then it continued with a question about whether or not it was acceptable to pay taxes to the Roman authorities in verses 13 through 17. And in that passage, Jesus revealed the religious leaders' hypocrisy. And now with this episode with the Sadducees, Jesus reveals their ignorance. In verses 18 through 27. So the chapter began with a question about authority in verses 1 through 12. And then a question about responsibility in verses 13 through 17. And now the big question. The question about eternity. Do you remember what day it is? Jesus has come into the city on Sunday. Monday is in the past. They're on day Tuesday. This is the final week of Jesus life. Wednesday will come and then Thursday and then an execution and then a burial and a resurrection on Sunday. 
The Pharisees and the Herodians have had their turn. Now it's the Sadducees. Look again in verse 12 or verse 18 of chapter 12. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and asked him. Now, the Sadducees are mentioned for the first and the last time in Mark's gospel. You'll remember that Mark's gospel is a gospel that's oriented towards Romans, towards Roman people in the Roman Empire. They are Roman citizens and Roman slaves, and many of them are only going to have a superficial understanding of Judaism, the religious leaders and all of that stuff. There's some dispute on whether or not the Sadducees accepted solamente only the the Torah, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But anyone who's ever gone to Sunday school, you'll remember when it says the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. That's why they're called sad. You see now. OK, having gotten that out of the way. The Sadducees were the descendants of the ruling class of priests. And they had an ascendancy during the time of the Maccabean revolt, which would have been some 100 plus years before the time of Jesus. Most Bible scholars believe that they are direct descendants of a priest named Zadok. Zadok was the high priest during the time of Solomon. Remember when Solomon built the original temple and so they believed that they were called Zadokzim or the descendants of Zadok. Now, I want you to understand, these are the Jewish religious aristocracy. They could trace their genealogy back during this time for a thousand years. It was a thousand years earlier when Zadok was the high priest. So the Sadducees are descendants of the ruling class of priests. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection of the body. They certainly don't believe in the existence of spirit beings in Luke's gospel or actually in Acts chapter 23, verse eight, written by Luke. He wrote the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit. And so these are men who deny the existence of the supernatural. The Sadducees didn't just simply not believe in the resurrection, not believe in spirit beings, not believe in angels and demons, but they also rejected the notions of eternal reward or eternal punishment. And you might be thinking, well, then why be religious at all? You don't believe in an afterlife. You don't believe in a resurrection. You don't believe in eternity or an eternal reward or punishment. Why go through the empty motions of being a religious person? Well, these are liberals who tenaciously cling to Jewish traditions. And they were very proud of their traditions. 
But they don't think that they have any reason to embrace what they would call superstitious humbug among the peasants. Angels, not really. A resurrection, well, it's metaphorical, it's allegorical, it's instrumental, it's indicative of this or that. And you might be wondering, how do do religious liberals live in our day? How can you be a person who denies the Bible at the beginning and at the end, who denies angels, deny demons, deny the resurrection, deny the reality of heaven or hell. The Sadducees ridiculed and scorned the spiritual and the supernatural. And earlier in the passage, Jesus has taken their enemies, the Pharisees, to task. And so the Sadducees must be thinking, how interesting. These are people who understand the value of religion and even the ability of religion to generate income. But the teachings of Jesus seemed unthinking, illogical, inconsistent with reality, lacking philosophical analysis or natural proof. And so when you embrace the mindset that religion is interesting, even financially lucrative, but the spiritual and supernatural are, well, nonsense, You can imagine how these people are thinking because some of you thought exactly the same way. I'll go to church with my husband. I'll go to church with my wife. But the Bible thing, I don't know. The the supernatural thing, I don't know. The resurrection thing, I don't know. One of the really interesting things for me anyway is the fact that we're going to be using Answers in Genesis as a curriculum for our children. Because you know what? You say, well, let's bring the kids to church so that they can have some sort of moral construct. This is the wrong church for you. Because we're not just going to give them a moral construct. If you bring your children here, we're going to teach them that the Bible is true and that they can believe it. That it can be trusted in the beginning and it can be trusted in the end. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, then I'm getting out of here. Well, good for you. Be warned. If you're wondering whether or not we're trying to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of God, if you're wondering whether or not we're trying to raise them to believe in Jesus and that the Bible is true and that the power of God can be experienced even by then, then this is the right place. But their liberal views, the Sadducees' anti-supernatural bias... Caused them to feel threatened by Jesus. They were, people were flocking to Jesus. You'll remember that they were enthralled by Jesus and they were fascinated by Jesus. They heard Jesus speak and they heard him preach. They saw the blind eyes open and the deaf ears open. They saw the leper cleansed and the dead brought back to life. And they're hearing the words of Jesus and they are beginning to understand something. They're soaking up his teaching. And that meant that the Sadducees were losing their grip on the people and their position and Authority and wealth were being jeopardized and the religious leaders felt it was necessary to attack and discredit Jesus. And so both the Pharisees, the religious conservatives and the Sadducees, the, 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 the religious liberals, they both united together and said, we've got we've got to get rid of Jesus. 
And so the hypothetical story they relate is intended to catch Jesus in his speech, to discredit him. Instead of revealing Christ's ignorance, it reveals their ignorance of the word of God and the power of God. The story, if you read it over and over again, like I have read it over and over again, is preposterous. You see, the story isn't an inquiry for some theological nuance. It's meant to heap ridicule and contempt on the notion of a physical resurrection and an afterlife. Warren Wearsby hits the nail on the head when he writes, quote, to Jesus, the answer to every question was in the scriptures, not in man's own thinking, unquote. And that was the great divide. That's the great divide. The great divide is man's opinions and God's revelation. And that is the great divide. The great divide isn't what you think or what I think. The great divide begins with what God has to think and what God has revealed. Just like today. There were ancient skeptics in the first century. If you're wondering that these are. Ancient bumpkins who fell prey to every kind of mythical and superstitious belief. You have got it absolutely wrong. Even in their day. Even in their day, they had the agnostic and even the atheist. And you might be wondering, how is that even possible? How can you be a religious person and go through the religious motions, but you believe that the Bible isn't really true and the statements in the Bible aren't really true? Well, guess what? It's always been that way. There were ancient skeptics then. There were ancient skeptics now. Folks who flat out denied the supernatural. And so... The resurrection is ridiculed and rejected. Look at verse 19. Teacher didascali, or he, they're calling him teacher. Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. It is true that Moses wrote what was known as the Leverite law. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Verses five and six in the ancient culture of the Israeli people, when a husband died without a son, the Leverite law said that his brother was to marry his wife and bear a son. By law, the son was considered the firstborn son of the deceased brother. He would actually take his name and his inheritance into the future. This assured two things. Number one, that the family name continued. And number two, that the property could be kept within the family. And the law was given in part to help preserve and enlarge the nation of Israel. But it was also to preserve and protect the widow. Who is often left unprotected. And by the way, this peculiar custom wasn't unique to the Jews in the Middle East. It was something that was held by many cultures in order to protect widows. And so the Sadducees now paint a picture based on this. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying. He left no offspring. And the second took her. 
and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman dies also. No kidding. Of course she did. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, snicker, snicker. You can almost see the sarcasm. You can see them put their hand over their mouth and you can see that when they said, therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise and then their eyes sort of do one of these numbers. Whose wife will she be? For all seven eyes again had her. Jesus. Jesus, isn't this going to be awkward? I mean, you talk about awkward. Whose wife is she going to be in eternity future? Now, we're going to do something that's not very different from what we always do on Sunday morning. I typically will ask you to think about the story that's just been told. How are we to think about this story? Before we think about the story, though, we're going to do something a little bit different. What's the spirit of the story and the questioning? It's sarcasm. In the minds of the Sadducees, it points to how absurd, how foolish the idea of another world, a spiritual world, might be to a thinking person. These guys think that they're smart. They're thinking that, hey, look, think of all of the difficulties and the awkwardness that comes with having a resurrection and another life. The question resurfaces another way. In the minds of the Sadducees, it points not only to the absurdity of the next life, but it also points to the reality of what they were thinking, that if such a life existed... The question resurfaces in our own lives. Well, what if I'm divorced and remarried? What if I ruined someone's life in the here and the now? What if I've ruined someone's life? And what if someone has ruined my life? What if someone has committed atrocities against my family? What if I've committed atrocities against their family? What if I've murdered and butchered a village and some... Far East outpost? What if there's been wars? What if there's been difficulties? What if there's been tragedies? Will I have to live with someone in heaven who ruined my life? The Sadducees envisioned an afterlife where the spiritual world was just like this world. Only different. A continuation of the world. Another place. A continuation both in nature and a continuation in relationships. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, the Sadducees thought they were very smart, but Jesus soon revealed their ignorance of two things, the power of God and the truth of the scripture. Resurrection is not the restoration of life as we know it. It is the entrance into a new life that is different, unquote. And that, my friends, is an amazing insight because the resurrection isn't simply the restoration of life as we know it, but it's the entrance into a new life. Stephen Neal wrote, quote, the purpose of revelation both in the Bible and the person of Jesus, is the renewal in us of that likeness to God, which man lost 
by sin. Here's part of the point. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned, unquote. Paul divides men into three classes. Sukikos. That means it means natural or of the senses or sensual. When Paul says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit. Sukikos is a word that is related to the word suke, which means thoughts, affections, ideas. It's the idea of the fallen man apart from Christ. It's everything that you are apart from Jesus, apart from being born again. It's everything that you are in your fallen state without the benefit of the new birth. Then there's pneumatikos, meaning spiritual. And it comes from pneuma, which means spirit. And this is the renewed man. This is the born again man. This is the person who's born from on high. This is the person who's experienced the power of God. Repentance from sin and forgiveness and eternal life. And they're filled with the spirit and they're walking in the spirit. And they're in communion with the spirit. And then there's a third kind of person. Sarkikos, it comes from the word sarks, which is flesh. And again, this is the human being who has been renewed by the Holy Spirit. They begin in the faith, but they, for whatever reason, they might read chapters in the book of Genesis. But when they get to Exodus, they start to get lost. And by the time they get to Leviticus, they hit the wall. And then they just decide that they're going to watch reality TV instead. These are the people who might make their way through parts of the Bible, the Psalms and the Proverbs. But when they hit the major and the minor prophets, they sort of give up and they'll read some of the Gospels. But Paul's writings are too hard. And so the natural man, these people who are sarkikos, they remain babes in Christ. The natural man may be learned and gentle and eloquent and fascinating. But the spiritual content of the scripture is absolutely hidden from them. And the worldly Christian is able to comprehend only the most basic, simple and superficial truths. The Bible refers to this as milk. And so, as you can imagine. If you're only superficially acquainted with the Bible. If you've never experienced the power of God. It's going to create some big problems. And so Jesus will defend the resurrection based on scripture and the power of God. Look at his answer. Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Again, look at what the text doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say. You're a priest. I'm a rabbi. You have your opinion. I have my opinion. You have your opinion. You're welcome to your opinion. I have my opinion. I'm welcome to my opinion. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says. Are you not therefore. Mistaken. I got to tell you something. This is the most gentle thing that Jesus could do. 
You may not know it, but that word mistaken comes from a Greek word which means to wander away. It was a word that would be used to describe heavenly bodies that had left their course in the heavens. You would see some sort of star or celestial body going in a direction that it probably shouldn't be going. And so it meant to wander. And in this particular case, it meant to wander from the truth. If anyone ever had the right to say, you know what, you Sadducees, you're a bunch of religious hypocrites and fools. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn you into mushrooms just for fun. And then they're mushrooms. And so Jesus, you know, puts a little hot water on them, adds some Italian herbs and dressings and then eats them for dinner. Now, I got to tell you something. If Jesus turned them into mushrooms and then turned them back, do you think a revival would have swept the country at this particular point? But Jesus doesn't do that. He's even kind. He's even gentle. He's even generous. Jesus reminds them that the resurrection is based on the scripture and the power of God. Jesus even says in the passage itself. Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? The resurrection is based on the scriptures and the power of God. Now, I want you to think about this. The Sadducees certainly do know the scriptures. Remember, they believe in Genesis. They believe in Exodus. They believe in Leviticus. They believe in Numbers and they believe in Deuteronomy. So we can't say that they don't know the scriptures at all. As a matter of fact, they cite the passage of scripture from Moses in the book of Exodus concerning the Leverite law. The Sadducees took classes on the Torah, but then they ditched the major and minor prophet classes. And certainly they ditched the classes on the Holy Spirit. But what can we learn even from that? It, it, it would appear that it's possible to read the scripture. It's possible to even quote the scripture. You can read it and you can quote it. But does that mean you know it? The Sadducees minimum were selective in their reading. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. They're selective in their reading and then they reject those passages of the scripture that disagreed with their point of view. So if you're selective in your reading and you go, you know what, I, I agree with that, that that's in the Bible and I agree with this and I agree with that, but I don't agree with that. You know what, you're making yourself the measure of what is true and what is false. The Sadducees find themselves in the difficult position, not only of being selective in their reading, not only of rejecting the prophecies concerning the Messiah and the resurrection, the Sadducees find themselves in the awkward position of being rebuked by Jesus for not knowing the scripture and in the power of God. As a matter of fact, in Job chapter 19, verse 25, Job, the arguably the oldest book in the Bible, Job, many Bible scholars believe was a contemporary with Abraham. And in the book of Job, chapter 19, verse 25, we read, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. Verse 
26, chapter 19. And after my skin is destroyed, it's a Hebrew expression. It's an idiomatic expression which deals with the corruption of the flesh. It speaks of the worms consuming your flesh. It's talking about the difficulty of decay and corruption. He's saying, and after my skin is destroyed, I'm completely eaten by worms. This I know that in my flesh I shall see God. Verse 27, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. It speaks of a resurrection of a literal Messiah coming and standing on a literal earth and then being raised from the dead. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, the prophet Isaiah writes, the dead men shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise Awake and sing, you that dwell in the dust. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Sadducees rejected biblical prophecy. The Sadducees did not experience the power of God. The Sadducees rejected the words of Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 25, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. And in verse 28, it says, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Verse 29 of chapter five in John's gospel and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. You know why this is important for you and me? Because Jesus is in part giving us a governor, a restriction, if you will, a prohibition. If you've ever wanted to not be mistaken about something, if you really do want to be correct about something, then it would make sense that you would know the scripture and that you would know the power of God. There's a reason why we give such emphasis on the word of God at our church. You see, the truth is there's a reason why we have men's Bible study and women's Bible study. There's a reason why we're calling you and encouraging the youth and the students to be involved in ministry. Because we understand that a knowledge of the scripture and an understanding of the scripture is going to provide safety and security for you. There are several reasons why we may not know the scriptures. We've never really studied them. You might be a person who studied the scriptures, but then you don't really believe them. Or you may take the scriptures and do some wild metaphorical and allegorical reasoning and apply weird and bizarre meanings that are completely inconsistent with what the text calls for. And so. We begin in Genesis and we go to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and we provide for you Bible studies in each and every and all of, of the Bible. Do you realize in just about six weeks from now, we're going to be celebrating our 20th anniversary as a church. And you know what I've desperately tried to do for you? Is not withhold anything that the Bible has to say. And it's taken a long time. 
to teach through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua and Judges, Jeremiah, a whole year, Isaiah, 66 chapters, a whole year. But you can know the scripture, but have never experienced the power of God. What might cause a person to be unfamiliar or unaware with the power of God? It could very well be that you've gone to church with your husband or your wife or with your family or with your friends, but you've never come to that place where you yourself have experienced the power of God, the forgiveness of sin, what it means to be sorry for your sin and turn from your sin and accept Christ as your Savior. Where you embrace him and you know him and you love him. You've experienced the power of God. The cleansing power of the Holy Spirit to take away guilt and to take away the pain. And to give you the faith and the confidence and the comfort of knowing that you're going to heaven and not going to hell. If, you, if you've ever experienced the power of God, then you begin to understand something. That you may not know everything about everything, but you've experienced the power of God in your life and you know that Jesus is real and you know that the Bible is true you know that there's a spiritual world you know there's an unseen dimension you know that you have a spirit and that that spirit is going somewhere have you ever been mistaken have you ever made a little mistake have you ever made a big mistake A gigantic error. A serious mistake. Here, knowing the scripture and trusting the power of God can keep you from these kinds of mistakes. And look what Jesus says in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, note, he doesn't let them off the hook. They do. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus assures the religious leaders, number one, that the dead do in fact rise. He also assures the religious leaders that the resurrection life is a different kind of life, a new dimension of being. Jesus indicates that relationships in in eternity are different and that they exceed relationships on the earth. The Sadducees don't know the scripture. The Sadducees don't know the power of God. And so I want you to think about it. I want you to think about your family, your friends, your neighbors, your children, your husband, your wife who don't know the scripture. They don't know the power of God. And so when they conceive of a world, when they conceive of the next world, they conceive of it as as a place where you can go fishing all the time. It's a place where you can play video games all the time. If you're a baseball player, you get to play baseball. And if you're a football player, you get to play football. If you're a singer, you get to, you get an, a lounge act. If you ride motorcycles, there's just open roads forever. But heavenly life and relationship in the future isn't simply a continuation of this world. They're unable to grasp the concept that God could create a totally new environment in which to live. And so, uh, again, it's okay to ask the question, what does this text and other texts in the Bible allow us to think about eternity? 
about what it's going to be like to live forever. Our future life and our relationships. When Jesus says the dead, they rise, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. Whatever else it means, the future life, the future life and the future relationships. I'm going to give you two categories from which to think about. You pick one. That life is going to be less. Or more. Okay, if you think less. Raise your hand. No takers. More. Yes, yes, that's what I want to see. Hands going up everywhere. It's got to be something more, not less. Future life and eternal life will be like that which is experienced by the angels. Heavenly life and relationship in that life will be perfect. Now, I want you to think about this. What kind of relationship do angels have with God? And again, what Jesus is doing is refuting not only their wrong concept about the resurrection, but their wrong concept about spirit beings, because there are angels. There are angels in heaven and they live for God and serve God and love God and are always there available And so here's the idea. Heavenly life and relationships in that life will be perfect. Our relationship in this life will not cease, but they will be changed perfectly, untainted by selfishness and sin and bitterness and resentment and foolishness and prejudice and pride. Our love will be perfect there and we will treat each other with the perfection of Christ's love. Yesterday, I did a wedding. And I love to do weddings. And this was a particularly beautiful wedding. And the groom was handsome. And the bride was beautiful. And they exchanged vows. And they looked into each other's eyes and pledged their love and pledged their loyalty and pledged their integrity. And I think they meant every single word of it. But no matter how wonderful, no matter how perfect, do we live in an imperfect world? And do things sometimes happen? You make promises and you really mean them and you don't keep them. You see, I think it's possible that a wife can be loved imperfectly. That a son and a daughter can be loved imperfectly. That family and friends can be loved imperfectly. And so God will change all relationships into perfection, even as the relationship between God and his holy angels are absolutely perfect. And when John was asked about this in first John chapter three, he wrote, behold, what manner of love the fathers lavished or bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God and such we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. There is a world in which heavenly life and heavenly relationships will be pure and will be perfect and will be eternal. Ebor Powell writes, quote, the redeemed will be as angels seeing, serving, praising God, unquote. 
And we've already talked about what kind of a place heaven will be, a place of no mores, no more temple, Revelation 21, 22, no more sea, Revelation 21, 1, no more tears, Revelation 7, 17, no more sickness, Revelation 22, 2, no more pain, Revelation 21, 4, no more death, Isaiah 25, 8, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the list could go on, no more thirst, no more hunger, no more sin, no need for the sun or moon, no No more night. That means no more hospitals, no more pills, no more needles, no more funeral parlors, no more divorce courts. But what is there? The father's there. The son is there. The Holy Spirit is there. And you're there. You are there. If you know him. If you love him. If you've turned from your sin and you've embraced him as Lord and Savior, you are going to be there with a new and a permanent and a recognizable body, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. A body that's like Jesus, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. A body capable of eating. Hold on, time out! Eating? Well, yeah, Jesus ate with his glorified body there on the shores of the Galilee. Okay, if you have a glorified body and you eat with it, does that mean you're going to have bowel and bladder functions in heaven? Why do you want to ruin my sermon? (laughs) Why do you want to even go there? Why do you even want to give me a Sadducee question? I know what you're all thinking. Well, I want now I want to know the answer. And the answer is. I'm not going to give up what I know for what I don't know. Jesus says there's going to be a resurrection. Jesus says the father's there. Jesus says the son is there. Jesus says in John 14, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I am, that's where you'll be. So we'll figure it out in heaven. Verse 26, but concerning the dead that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses? In the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Jesus cites a passage of scripture that even the Sadducees deemed authoritative in Exodus chapter three, verse six. But when he even does that, when he says, have you not read in the book of Moses? Do you know what he's implying? That the book of Moses, that Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus were actually written by Moses and are reliable for information about The nature of God and the promises of God and the future that God promises. He cites the scripture that even the Sadducees would deem authoritative. And there God speaks of himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But how is that even possible? The Sadducees are there. They're in the temple. They're asking Jesus. They could have walked out of the temple. They could have gone south for the day and a half. They could have went to Hebron. They could have visited the tomb of Abraham and Sarah, the place where Isaac and Jacob are buried. They could go into the tomb and if they had enough nerve, they could crack it open and they could see that only their 
bones and dust were left of them, that they are dead, D-A-D, dead. They are dead, dead, dead and buried in Hebron. So how can Jesus say, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? And Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. In what way is God the God of the living? Our relationship with God is a living relationship and a loving relationship and an eternal relationship. And therefore, that relationship cannot be permanently broken. God is the God of the past and God is a God of the present. And God's relationships are not inactive, but active. And God's relationships are good and rewarding. William MacDonald makes this argument. He says, number one. God had made promises to the patriarchs concerning the land and concerning the Messiah. Number two, the promises were not fulfilled during their lifetime. Number three, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, the bodies of the patriarchs were in the grave. Number four, yet God spoke of himself as the God of the living. Number five, he must fulfill the promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Number six, therefore, resurrection is an absolute necessity from what we know. Of the character of God. They must. Be alive. And you. Must. Come back to life. God is the God of the living and Jesus is both God and Lord of the living and dead. No wonder Jesus said. You are therefore. Greatly. Mistaken. One translation reads, Ye therefore do greatly err. I love it when it's that way. It sounds so majestic. They're wrong. But remember why they're wrong. They're wrong because they chose to misread the text that they were willing to accept. They were wrong because they ignored the greater revelation given in the scripture. They were wrong because they heard the words of Jesus and refused to be corrected. You know, there are many areas in our lives where we can afford to make a mistake. A financial error might leave you impoverished and an athletic error might mean you lose an important contest. Errors can cost you time and they can cost you money. But what happens when you make a mistake about Jesus? About the Bible? About the scriptures? About the power of God? About the resurrection? You see, the Sadducees placed their souls on the table of time and they called Jesus, intimating that Jesus was bluffing. He was bluffing about God. He's bluffing about heaven. He's bluffing about his identity. He's bluffing about being the Messiah. But Jesus has all the cards in his hand. It is Tuesday. It will be Wednesday soon. Jesus will question the Pharisees concerning the Messiah. And during the Olivet Discourse, he is going to... Receive a couple of more questions, but the truth is he's going to die. And he's going to come back to life. 
and the prophecy and the power are going to unite in one majestic event. So much so that in Acts chapter 26, verse 8, Paul will argue, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? He prophesied that he would. There are 17 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in the New Testament. He predicts his death and his resurrection. He appears after his death and resurrection. The proofs are piled high. Prophecy, appearance, empty tomb. All of the evidence points not to a gullible, superstitious, easily deceived people, but rather a group of people slow to grasp the evidence, reluctant to comprehend the evidence. But once they're convinced, once they're convinced, they're willing to die. They're willing to live and die for this thing called the gospel. We will sing in heaven We will serve in heaven. We will learn in heaven. And it won't just simply be a continuation of this world. It will be perfection. And you will be able to respond in perfection to everyone you've hurt and everyone who's hurt you. We see the greatest change take place in the hearts and lives of the followers of Jesus. Sorrow and pain are replaced with joy and faith. Have you ever wanted to know more about the scriptures? Have you ever wanted to experience the power of God? Let me encourage you. It's those two areas which are going to lead to peace and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we know that we too are subject to mistake. That we can be mistaken. And perhaps even greatly mistaken. If we don't know the scriptures. If we don't understand the power of God. And so Lord we pray. We pray, we pray, we pray that you would give us insight. Into what this life has for us. And what the next life promises for us. In Jesus name.